So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man, the monthly magazine show for your ears. Here's what we've got coming up for you today. It felt like a very long time until I found someone that was probably only minutes, but it felt like a very, very long time, and I couldn't get the words out. Fear, excitement, grief, gratitude. I meet the listener whose waters broke at 24 weeks. Plus... A lot of people, when they think dirty talk, they think humiliation and degradation. Alex Fox on the perfect pillow talk and Ollie Peart gets revolutionary. That's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters. And following my interview with Mike Merrill last month, the man who sold shares in himself, uh, man fan Mike Potts writes... Ollie, isn't this what a considerable number of folks do on social media these days anyway? Make life decisions based on likes and comments and share their intimate details with no need to sell shares. Uh, I agree, Mike. And that was one of the things that really intrigued me about um, his story is that perhaps 15 years ago, when uh, Mike first started posting so much of his personal information online, that felt kind of artsy and avant-garde. Um, but now we all do it, don't we? We all gamifying elements about ourselves. Uh, Man fan Barney, meanwhile, was unimpressed by Mike's shenanigans. He says, Ollie, on his website, Mike claims his stock price becomes a benchmark for his success, but really, his stock price just measures how much people want to buy his so-called stocks. It doesn't necessarily reflect any other aspect of his success. This seems like a play version of debt bondage to me. Not a fan. Uh, noted. Thank you, Barney. Uh, hello as well to man fan Graham, uh, who says, Ollie, I love listening to your podcast during long car journeys to work. I'd long been meaning to buy you a beer, never quite got round to it. However, upon hearing that you're brave enough to be discussing republicanism during the month of a coronation, I finally got off my lazy ass and raced to the computer <laughs> to sign up to send you beer money. Uh, thank you, Graham. Uh, he continues, being a Republican and not understanding the strange simultaneous mix of hero worship and bear baiting of a rather unfortunate, unelected and dysfunctional family can certainly seem like having a very lone voice in this country. I can't wait to hear what you've got to say about it. Uh, well, you haven't got long to wait, Graham. Uh, in the meantime, I shall spend your contribution not on beer, but uh, on coronation quiche. Uh, and thanks too to new beer money donor Kathy Cheng in Dalston, who says, Ollie, I am an avid podcast listener, but The Mon Man is by far my favourite. Whoop! Uh, your show makes chores... So much more enjoyable. Uh, again, 
there, man fans turning to us for entertainment when doing an otherwise boring task. I'm delighted about that. You know, it's not like we're making bubblegum pop here. We do bring you all sorts of deeply serious stuff as well. Uh, today's episode is certainly no exception to that. Uh, so, yes, it's lovely to be your uh, appointment listen whilst you're distracted from dullness. Uh, if we do that for you, uh, then do what Graham and Kathy did. If you can afford to buy us a beer and support our independent podcast, I would love that. Uh, visit Modern Man with two ends.co.uk and click beer money uh, or click feedback if you'd like to send us a letter or do both. Why not do both? Do both. Uh, right. On today's show, you will learn what happened when Alex Fox's partner took her up the pier. You will learn when to deploy the phrase, now where were we? And you'll learn what a quarter of sexually active men feel uncomfortable about. Let's go. Right, it's time for the first zeitgeist of the Carolean era. Your trends tested with the Right Honourable Ollie Peart. Carolean? That's right, that's what we're supposed to call it now. Did you not get the memo? No, I thought it'd be something like um, charlatan or char- charlatans. What were you doing on the on the, uh, on the big day, the day of the coronation? I was trying to look after my daughter whilst I did have it on in the background, you know, sort of going on. I thought, oh, I kind of want to watch a bit of history unfolding. Haven't had one of these in 70 years or however long yes. it has been. So my daughter was running around throwing Duplo bricks at my face. Did you do the whole day? I, I started by, oh, let's have it on in the background at nine in the morning. Mm. I got hooked. I was in there. I was in there all the way through to the flypast. Oh, right. No, I didn't have it on right up until that point. But I did watch the whole sort of ceremony, if you like. And all I was looking out for was when the hat went on. It takes ages to put that hat on. You had exactly the same preferences as my seven-year-old son. That's literally the whole time. He kept running into the room saying, is the hat on yet? Is the hat on yet? It's it's going to be ages. (laughs) My mental age right there, Ollie. Well, we we are talking about the monarchy this month because uh, man fan Justin in Eastbourne, you might recall, wrote in last month to task you, Ollie Peart, with investigating the trend for republicanism. Mm. The very fact that you were watching it at home rather than being arrested in Trafalgar Square suggests you didn't go native with this one. Um, But I would like to know what you've discovered. How much of a trend is republicanism? Is it a growing trend now that the Queen's dead? Uh, The the old Queen. I know we've got a new Queen. Yes. She's still alive at the time of recording. Hallowed be her name. May she live forever. Yeah. The short answer is kind of. I, I, I feel like I sort of say that more often than perhaps I should. but No, what you usually say is, oh, it turns out it's really difficult to do a difficult thing. That's usually the conclusion. <laughs> it, it depends on the age of the people that you ask, is the short answer. As a country, we do prefer having a monarchy overall rather than an elected head of state. There was a recent survey done, it was a YouGov opinion poll, and it said that 58% of us would prefer to have the monarchy as it is instead of elected head of state. But as you get to younger people, 18 to 24-year-olds, only 32% of them back the monarchy. They would much prefer to have uh, an elected head of state. I say much prefer, 38% would prefer to have an elected head of state. Yeah, so all the surveys that I've seen, and actually there were a surprising amount of these being discussed. You know, when we put this challenge to you last month, I kind of thought, well, this will be fun because everyone will be obsessed with the coronation in May. We'll be the only people talking about republicanism. Actually, to be fair, like a major news story throughout, hasn't it, has been these surveys and younger people are changing their minds and they're not sure... But looking at the stats, it seems like most people don't know, seems to be like the the largest groups and people who aren't sure haven't made up their mind. I feel like I speak for most people I know where I'm like, well, of course, I wouldn't invent the royal family. Like, it's obviously batshit. 
But at the same time, I wouldn't change it now because it's Britain. Well, this is the, this is the, I think this is a problem with the poll, generally speaking. It, it, it's going to be one of those questions where it's like, oh, do you agree, do you not agree, or do you not know, don't know? So the answer comes out is don't know. I think the real answer is they're just ignorant to any alternative. And the reason I say that is I to, to learn more about being a Republican and what it actually meant, I had to speak to one. And I, I managed to get hold of uh, Yasmin Alibi-Brown. Yasmin Alibi-Brown is uh, a very well-known uh, journalist. She's an ardent Republican. She's been speaking at events for republic.org.uk. UK, who are the people that you've seen a lot of in the news. Their leader is um, Graham Smith, who was recently arrested uh, for protesting at the coronation. Well, no, for uh, attempting to protest, for not even getting out of his van. Not even getting out of his van, yeah. yes. He was just locked up in a cell. Uh, and Yasmin recently did a talk with him about about being Republican. And I had a really interesting and fascinating chat with her where I, I said to her, look, you know, I just kind of, I, I'm just indifferent about it. I just kind of don't. You know, I don't really think about it. It doesn't really enter my mind too much. I don't worry about there being a royal family. She was very angry at me, <laughs> at me saying that uh, in a very lovely and polite way, I, I hasten to add. But she basically said, this is the problem. People are indifferent, but more so they're ignorant. They don't really fully understand the history of the royal family and why it's so problematic. Now, Yasmin grew up in Uganda and they were part of the Commonwealth. And she remembers when she was a, a child being forced, basically, to wave a flag for one of the royals who was coming to c- come and visit. And she was like, why do I have to do this? Why have I got to wave a flag for someone I don't know that does nothing for my country? And uh, another time as she was a bit older, in their cinemas there, they always had to stand and um, sing the national anthem before a film would start. She refused and got kicked out. That's an interesting personal experience and how it's affected her perspective. But it's, it, it, when you take uh, British traditions and put them overseas, you can see how they have a different flavour to here. It's a bit like the Church of England itself, isn't it? You know, I went to a school where every day I had to stand up and say the Lord's Prayer, despite the fact that I'm A, agnostic and B, Jewish. But it Mm. didn't really bother me because I knew that because I'm in England and I can see that the Church of England is such an entirely unthreatening proposition and that most of the people in it don't really care either way as well. (laughs) Whereas I feel like if you're overseas, it's a different thing, isn't it? If you're being told this... This person, this institution still rules the waves. Yeah, and I can see that. You you know, you're kind of like, who is this person from a foreign land sort of coming in and, and telling me that I need to do these things? I, I get it. Uh, Yasmin did move or, or come to the UK after being kicked out of Uganda when she was uh, younger, and, and but still maintained that view because she saw the hypocrisy, I suppose, of what the royal family claimed to represent. It was, you know, they were sort of put up as a, and I'll put up as a, a family who uh, um, should be should be looked up to and respected. They are morally superior. However, when you start digging into it and looking at it, they, I mean, they've had lots of... Oh, it doesn't of, take a lot of digging. No, it, doesn't it really a lot of doesn't. Prince Andrew's right there. And and, and this, is the, this is one element of, of the argument. It's, it's why, why should we, as a country, have a family in that position representing this country who actually, when you don't do down all that far, don't represent any, if any, of the values that we have as a, as a general society, as a country? You know, why would, it, why would we not instead... 
have somebody that we've chosen to be in that position. But we're not going to end up with uh, a president who's any more representative of, of the country's views necessarily than Charles. I mean, maybe that is just sort of a stroke of luck of where he's ended up that actually, you know, you look at what he's been trying to do for the environment and the Prince's Trust over the last 40 years and actually it looks kind of cool now in a way that was derided when he started. Uh, and equally, if he didn't do any of those things, he'd still be king regardless. <laughs> but, you know, if everyone voted on a president, you'd probably end up with a white guy in his 70s with much the same views, really, wouldn't you? Yeah, possibly. But that th- that person, that white guy in his 70s, may well be that it's Charles, because Charles could stand if he wanted to. That would um, be nuts, wouldn't it? Can yeah, you imagine? But, but that, but on that the campaign would... trail. <laughs> but that, that would, exactly. But Get that... me another bloody pen! <laughs> <laughs> But if you were a Republican... I don't want to kiss this ugly baby. <laughs> you would, but you'd have to be, as a Republican, you'd have to be, yeah, that's fine. And they, and they would. And that's what being a Republican is all about. I, and the other thing, you know, sort of saying, calling them a president, that's the other thing which I think Yasmin took issue with, is, the, is, is this lack of creativity about thinking what an elected head of state could be and could represent. So, you know, the way that it is at the moment, you know, the monarchy shouldn't have any kind of political influence, should it? You know, they should not have any say whatsoever in what's happening in the country. If you look at a president like President Biden or whatever, or um, Putin or Macron, you know, they they do have a huge amount of political influence. What we could do instead, this is Yasmin's suggestion, is we could have people that stand that have absolutely zero political influence whatsoever. They are simply there as a symbolic representation of the, of, of the values of the country. Her suggestions. Mary Berry. Wasn't Mary Mary Berry, but I think that's a good suggestion. Joanna Lumley could be right. (laughs) I wasn't far off, was I? Yeah, no, you weren't too far off. Tim Berners Lee. Yeah. Who would you have? Well, it's not a question of who, is it? It's a question of why would you ditch all the pomp and ceremony that the world tunes in to see? Because that's the other argument, isn't it? it To answer these questions. But why would you have to ditch? Why do we still have it? Why do we still have it? So the the answer that most people come up with is well, tourism. You know, and notoriety for our country. We're a relatively unimportant country now. Our growth rate is atrocious. You know, we've left the EU. Here's a reason that the world is still interested in what we do. And they are, you know. The coronation is televised live in the United States in the middle of the night, all night long. There are lots of royalists all around the world who watch it, and they would not be interested in the nomination of Mary Berry to the presidency. <laughs> well, look, I put, I put, I actually put this point to, to Yasmin. The, the tourism point, again, she got quite politely angry at me and she said look france is a republic and it gets something like 10 times more visitors a year than we do as a country it does have hotter beaches it does have nice beaches if you cut the country in half yeah and it's got mountains up then who's going to normandy yeah you can go (laughs) only brits exactly yeah you can and that's only to get cheap booze and i'm not even sure you can get that anymore oh Um, i can get an amazing sam fire burger in normandy i can tell you exactly where to go check me later yeah Yeah. oh yeah okay yeah Yeah. i'd love that but mentioning the pomp and stuff why would you have to why would you have to get rid of that you know america's got its own version of pomp which is a load of bulletproof cars or the cia running next to the president's car like it doesn't mean that the pomp would have to go just put attenborough in the crown so in all seriousness, that's really what some Republicans think, is that if you're going to ditch the monarchy, you could keep the crown and Westminster Abbey and the choirs and the gold. I mean, because the thing is, it's like the medievalness of it was amazing, wasn't it? The swords, the prayers. It's a living example of just how old our country is and how continuous the traditions have been. Well, the, the point is, is you could choose, couldn't you? You could decide as a country. You know, 
we decided we wanted to leave the EU. Nobody thought that that and was going to happen. Everybody's happy with that decision. We're oh, so delighted. Glad that it was put to hey, us. listen, listen. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying to you that, that these views. It's like, Fine. and and I think this, this is the problem, isn't it? With the monarchy, that I heard Stephen Fry say the other day. It's sort of like, okay, yeah, they're not perfect, but they're everybody's, and they're nobody's at the same time. Okay, so what else have you discovered in this month looking into republicanism and has it changed your mind? Okay, what what have I learned? I've learned that being a Republican is a really difficult position to try and persuade people to come onto your side. There is a a weird protectionism, is that a word, of the royal family to the point where, and I said this to Yasmin, when she was talking about it, I said to her, it's weird, I'm indifferent, I'm not really that bothered, but... Yeah. I feel you find like yourself defending it, yeah. I feel which is what like, I've just been doing. But more than that, I felt like she was attacking me personally. Yes. I felt like she was attacking part of my identity. Yeah, well, you see, this is how Americans feel about their armed services, isn't it? They get mm. very defensive and antsy when you start criticising that or their devotion to the flag. And it's because that's how they're brought up. It's yeah. like the armed services are the most important thing and service to the flag is the most important thing. They've always been there. It's always been there. And when you say something about a hypocrisy or a corruption... To an American, they get defensive about that because they're brought up swearing allegiance to it. I guess there's an element of that. It's not the same with the king because we all laugh at the king, don't we? Like the gossip and the soap opera is part of what we all enjoy as Brits and sniping at the telly coverage was part of watching it. Yes, absolutely. But at the same time, I, I guess, yeah, like if someone starts challenging their right to be there because they've always been there and because I sang God Save the Queen from the age of two, there's a part of me that's like, no, you, you can't. That's fundamental. You can't argue that. The reality is, is that republicanism in the UK isn't a thriving uh, opposition because of what we've just talked about. The people that might oppose the monarchy aren't actively opposing the monarchy. That's the that's the thing. And it's because it's quite an uncomfortable position to be in. I mean, I, I had a conversation with my dad about it and I was like, well, you know, why do we have a monarchy? And, you know, I, my dad strikes me as the kind of person that would be like, uh, actually, yeah, I, I'm probably more of a Republican. Not at all. He was way more pro-royal than I thought he was going to be. So being in that position is just a really uncomfortable one to be in. So there aren't that many people, even if they are against the monarchy, that are actively, you know, petitioning against it. Okay, so if you're listening to this and you're a Republican and you want to get some pace behind your campaign, if you keep Mm. falling at every turn because people have this entrenched loyalty to the royal family, what should you do? I, I think what you've you've got to do is 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 talk to people about it, understand it, understand the history of the royal family as well, because that's going to be the crux of your argument. It's always going to be, look, why do we need these people in this position? But like any opposition, like any opposition in politics, you've got to have an alternative. You have to tell people what the alternative is and how it's going to work. And as much as it was brilliant talking to Yasmin about the potential of, you know, like who we could have as our head of state, you know, that's great. Okay, logistically, how's that going to work? How are we going to do that? But if you're a member of these groups, Ollie, you've spent decades trying to talk. They've tried talking. Talking isn't working. So the other thing that I suggest they do is change the music. Uh Uh-huh. The national anthem, the core of British culture. If we're going to change the way that we operate and function, we need a new national anthem. And thankfully, thankfully for wannabe Republicans, I've taken the liberty of actually creating one. Excellent. Who needs Andrew Lloyd Webber to have a go when you've got Captain Spronk? 
Not Captain Spronk. I've decided Captain Spronk needed to take a little bit of a, um, a leave on this one and instead uh, recruit the services of an existing song because, hey, as a country, we have a history of stealing things and repurposing them. So, do you want to hear my national anthem that I've created for uh, a future republic, uh, Britain? Leaving this section of the show at some point requires me to say yes. So it's the FA Cup final. I'm right out on the uh, the centre circle on the pitch. Crowd yeah. are roaring. Ye- yellow yes. flags are waving. Whatever flag we decide to have. And they're I'm excited there. like the crowd anticipating Oli Mers and Andrea Bocelli. Exactly. Hand on heart, Oli. Yeah. I'm actually putting my hand on my heart, even though this is not being broadcast in video form. It's compelling. I am British, a British citizen of this beautiful republic. God save our gracious railways, the sonnets of Shakespeare. Tim Berners-Lee, who gave us the internet. The unions pushing for justice Cadbury's Attenborough Stormzy and Sheeran So much to be proud of this nation So get lost king And sod off monarchy And welcome to this country Okay, so we left the EU And we've learned from our mistakes And our elected <laughs> head of state To be fair, no one knows the second verse of God so Save the King Okay, no, I don't know And deck, perhaps Mary Berry What about that bloke from the insurance ads? It oh, could yeah, even yeah. be Jeremy Kyle But that's the point It's our mistake I'm a British, British Am citizen. I supposed to interrupt to make this stop? I'm not sure what's happening. Wrong. It's not my fault. I vow to accept responsibility for electing. I'm proud to be British. I'm proud to be British. I, I, mean, I, I think we get the gist. Yeah, okay. I mean, weirdly, most of those lyrics would be perfectly at home in the King's Coronation concert. <laughs> yeah. You know, Shakespeare, that was that was all part of it, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I feel like I could have given you a slightly better rendition. My voice wasn't warmed up all that well, but uh, you need you need something you can kind of get behind and shout. What did you think? I was deeply moved. <laughs> Shall we find out what your challenge is for next month's show? <laughs> yeah, sure, why not? It's from Daisy from London, who says, My favourite programme is The Repair Shop. I worry we've just lost Daisy from London. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's just, she's putting up more bunting in anger. Um, Yeah, the king was actually on The Repair Shop, wasn't he? I haven't caught up with that one yet. I just love, she says, the satisfaction of seeing something being restored. Could Ollie restore an antique? Oh, wow. An antique? Yeah. That's huge responsibility. It is. We'll give you a budget. Uh, again, not, not not large sums. Yeah, and okay. And you can go to uh, a local, you know, jumble sale or, or eBay or whatever and buy stuff that you don't know the people that it belongs to, so you're Hold not on. ruining anyone's watch. 
Can you get antiques from a jumble sale? You're going to find out. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you doing Chippendale furniture is probably not going to feel like the zeitgeist, is it? No. Although Daisy is right that there is a trend for repairing stuff on telly. So mm. I wonder if um, you could try and modernise the stuff that you buy. You know, make it fit for the 21st century. Right, okay. Like a... Oh, I'm just trying to think of an antique. I don't know. Like an antique sword that's also an Alexa. If that yeah. doesn't already exist. Actually, that that's quite a good challenge. I've, I keep getting served up these videos on YouTube and Instagram of people, like, repairing stuff. They're really therapeutic. It's not like um, antiques. It's sort of, you know, retro tech like PlayStations and Game Boys and stuff like that. It's Ooh. great. Yeah. Oh, I'd love you to restore some retro tech. Okay, yeah. great. Uh, we look forward to seeing that next month. If you have a challenge that you would like to task Ollie Pitt with completing here on The Modern Man, then head over to our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, and click on the feedback form. See you next month, Ollie. See you next month, Ollie. Coming up next, man fan Elaine will be sharing her story. But first, it's our record of the month and something I think uh, Captain Spronk fans might enjoy. Uh, it's Letter to Myself by the Lottery Winners featuring Frank Turner. Dear self, I know you're crying out for help. So I thought I'd write this letter. What are you now, like 12? I know it seems like the pressure's stuck on high. But I've come from the future to tell you it's fine. You need to worry less about how you are perceived And focus a bit more on the things that you believe Cause I know it seems like now you don't have your place But it will all fit together, trust me it's the case So get out there and do all the things you love And don't you dare sacrifice them just to look good Oh, read some of those books, sitting on the shelf Drinking that knowledge, this is a letter to myself Now as you know, on this show, we love to get out around the country and meet listeners like you who do us such an honour when you entrust us to tell your story. And for this month's middle feature, it's the turn of man fans Elaine and Mark Gregerson from Newcastle. Now, Elaine is a law professor at Northumbria University, and she wrote into the show after hearing me interview Joe and Steve Peck back in 2018 in our episode, The Unlucky Ones, uh, which you might remember was about multiple miscarriage. And as in Joe and Steve's story, what you're about to hear over the next 45 minutes is sometimes intense and goes to very dark places. Do check the show notes for more information. Elaine and Mark met at a local film club and shortly after their honeymoon discovered they were pregnant. Almost immediately, they went for a private scan just to confirm there was a baby in there. They were told everything looked normal. And then, at 12 weeks, it was time for their first NHS scan. And this time, although the sonographer's screen was faced away from her, Elaine could tell something was different. It, it just took longer. And a sonographer was looking at the monitor, which I couldn't see. And she's wiggling the probe, you know, they go from left to right and up and down. They're pushing down on your bladder and you've got the gel on you. And it's all very bizarre because you've got your stomach out in front of everyone. Everyone can sort of see you and see the screen, but you can't see anything. And it just seemed to take a long time. And then almost in slow motion, she turns the monitor towards me and Mark. And as she's turning it... She says, I've got something very special to tell you. And then I knew. I knew when she was turning the monitor. Oh, of course it is. I've known all along. I've known all along. 
that it was twins. People think, I guess, with multiple births, that the bit people need support on is if they have, I don't know, quintuplets or yes. sextuplets, because that's what makes the headlines. Yes. Oh, imagine if you had six kids. Yes. But actually, it's still double what you were expecting. Yeah. When we found out, I cried, but I didn't cry because I was overjoyed. I cried because I was panicked. I could not get my head around how we were going to cope. Two cots, two prams, two nursery fees. That weighed on my mind a lot. Work, finance. And I remember thinking, I only want one. Really? Yeah. Oh, I only wanted one. I just wanted one. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah, wanted yeah. a baby. A baby was lovely. Yeah. And I've been given two. Yeah. And I only want one. But I imagine a lot of people do feel like that mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to just be doubly happy. Yes. And I wasn't like... Give it, give it a few hours to get my head around it. And then you start thinking, oh, this is something really special. I got my purse out to pay for the scan photos and the sonographer's assistant, the, the, there was another nurse in the room, sort of put a hand on mine and sort of went, oh, you don't have to pay. And she printed out bundles, you know, it was like a concertina of these scan photos with these twins on. And it was that that moment of, oh, this is special. Yeah, this is special even for the people who work here. Yeah, yeah, you are special. They are special. This is exciting. Because no one says, do they? No one says twins without it being an exclamation mark at the end. Right. Or in capital letters. Yeah. They announce it. If a celebrity has twins, it's always in capital letters. And it's always like, twin. You know, there's something about the multiple pregnancy that is really exciting. Mm-hmm. So you were excited, but you were also thinking this is going to be hard. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, a friend of a friend who had also had twins who were very kind and sent us like their spreadsheet of things that we would need, which is terrifying <laughs> when we, we started to look at it. But things were still very early on at that point. So we weren't really thinking, oh, we suddenly have to go out and buy two cots now. We will do, but we don't have to do it now. We've got plenty of time. We wandered around John Lewis and pushed a pram for a bit and thought, oh, isn't this exciting, but also terrifying how we're going to get through doors. So we did a bit of that, but I was quite ill during the pregnancy. I I had really, really bad sickness. So I was carrying a bowl around with me most of the time. The boys, uh, because they were boys. um, You you knew they were boys? Yes, we found out 20 weeks and boys. They they made me very unwell um and I had at one point I had one directly underneath my ribs and then I had one right down really really low in my groin so I was just getting pressure everywhere so I was always feeling quite unwell and I was almost like double high risk because not only was I having twins but my twins shared a placenta and they they were identical so we were being scanned every two weeks but I was sick during it and the one of the lovely midwives who was sort of there at the time took me into a room I think just to get me away from everyone and because I can't have a you know a silence at any point I started talking to her about things that had happened to me recently and made a comment a throwaway comment about oh I'm going to have to have some sort of bladder training because the kids are pressing so hard on my bladder that I'm like weeing myself 
And I'd made a joke about this to my best mate and she had found me like some really good disposable pants. And so for a couple of weeks I'd been like saying, oh yeah, bladder's gone, I'm old woman. You know, like here I am with my pants and you know, all these sort of jokes. And I'd been going in my lunch break at work, I'd been going to like a shop and like having to get new clothes because this bladder weakness had occurred. And I said this to the midwife. She asked me a couple of questions. She said, does it smell? And I kind of went, that's a funny question. I was like, not really. (laughs) And she's like, is there a lot of it? Can you sort of see anything? Is it sort of see-through? And you know, sort of like, yeah, sort of kind of like see-through. It's like water. She said, oh, I'm I'm gonna send you up to another hospital to have have a test. And I said, oh, will that, will I get that? appointment through the post you know will it a letter come will it be in the next few weeks she said no I'm sending you up now I want you to get in your car and I want you to go up to this other hospital it's like an emergency specialist hospital I want you to go up now I think your waters might be leaking what did you think that that meant I thought well I want to get I want to get my marking done (laughs) I want want to get back to work I I did not believe it I did not believe it she's wrong and I've just got bladder weakness yeah I thought it's lovely that everyone's so good that they want to make sure everything's okay and isn't this like a brilliant service but at the same time I really don't want to get in the car and go up to another hospital I want to go home and have some lunch and get on with my work I made loads of jokes to my best mates on the way there because I'm just constantly whatsapping my mates on the way oh I'm going to the hospital or I think I made a joke about I hope they give me some more biscuits because I got free biscuits for the gestational diabetes test and I was quite excited about the bourbons and so I was like oh I'm going to get the biscuits and so everyone was fine I was like honestly I'm fine and you can go back through my messages and I have gone back through my messages to remind myself of that day you can go back through my messages and you can see me going honestly everyone is just taking this is wonderful everyone's taking this very seriously but genuinely no one needs to come I'll be home in a few hours I'm a bit tired. I emailed work to say, I'm just going to be at the hospital for a bit, but I'll be back in like in a couple of days. I might need to be off tomorrow, but I'll be back. I'll be definitely be back in after the weekend. A lovely nurse came in and she brought in a big red torch and she put the torch down on the side and she said, this is going to be a bit weird, pet, but we're just going to take this torch and we're going to look up you. And we're just going to see what's going on up there. So, okay, this this day gets stranger. So I'm taking a photograph of this torch and I'm sending it to my best mates going, on a camping holiday now, here <laughs> I am. And then a doctor comes in and then has a good look up there. But it's very, I remember it being very, very uncomfortable. And he's looking up to see what's going on. And then he goes out of the room and he comes back with a senior doctor. And that's when I knew. When he comes back in with the senior doctor and the senior doctor's face is not happy. And then I just felt like I was in an episode of like Casualty or Holby City. Because I don't think I really took in what he was saying. I don't think I believed it. What did he say? I'm very sorry to have to tell you this. And those are the only words I can remember. Something within my brain stopped thinking, when your waters go, you have babies. Right, yeah. 
I just went, my waters are, are leaking. I'm sure someone will get them to stop leaking. <laughs> you know, something will stop them and it'll all be fine. I was taken into a, a room. It was a lovely private room with a like a private bathroom as well. And I remember thinking, oh, this is posh, isn't it? I've got my own bathroom. And someone from the neonatal unit at that hospital, I remember sort of leaning back on a, like a cupboard or something and saying, if you have the babies now, they cannot stay here because our neonatal unit is not set up for babies that are that premature. We can take babies who are maybe around about 31, 32 weeks, but 24 weekers, we cannot take here. You'll have to go to another hospital. But I still didn't for one second that I thought, oh, this is nice information. (laughs) This is good. (laughs) Um, It's nice to know. (laughs) And then she said, if you could just keep them in for a few more weeks, there'd be a better chance of them surviving. Do you remember Mark turning up? No. Do you remember what you said to him? No. I was at work and we speak virtually exclusively through text and a phone call came through. And I knew that she was in the hospital. I knew that she was having tests and she rang up and said, it's nothing to worry about, but they've asked me to go to the hospital. They've asked me to go now. I'm going up there. I don't think there's any problems. I'll, I'm expecting to be out by the end of the day. And the text that I got through and phone calls I got through later in the day made it very clear that I needed to, I needed to join her. I was told that there was a small leak of the fluid and it it was left at that. I was told it can last for weeks, it can last for last for months. Um, it was just a normal thing and they'd just keep an eye on us because that's how it was throughout the whole of the pregnancy. We'll have more tests, we'll just keep an eye on you and everything's okay. I, I felt so fine about it that I came home and had a takeaway and a couple of beers and just thought, oh, night to myself, that's uh, that's all right. Just went to bed slightly later than I should do and um, yeah, and expecting to be off the next day and going back into visit Elaine in hospital. And then at midnight, I felt this almighty kick and then just warm water flooding the bed. Then I remember walking through the ward to find help. And the only way I can describe it now to other people is that I felt like Carrie when that bucket of blood falls on her head and that level of shock and that level of horror and that powerful thing of something really really awful has happened to me like physically within my body and I'm in this drenched nightgown walking through the wards trying to find someone to tell them that my waters have broken and it felt like a very long time until I found someone it was probably only minutes but it felt like a very very long time and I couldn't get the words out so it's like that dream that you have where something terrible's happened to you and in your dream, you're not able to vocalise what's gone on. Then it must be a bit of a blur, isn't it? It goes in and out. I I don't remember Mark arriving. You know when you have a really, really deep sleep? I woke up to my phone ringing 
whilst dreaming that my phone was ringing and I looked at my phone and I had four missed calls, two voicemails and the phone was still ringing and I picked it up and it was Elaine saying my waters have broke. I then, while I was running around the house trying to get ready, I listened to the voicemails and they were from nurses saying, Elaine's just a little bit upset and we think you should come in. Um, But obviously by that point I was aware of this seriousness of the situation it had only been five minutes but they'd just been spamming me and I think then Elaine had tried to ring me and that was the thing that that woke me up what did you think was going to happen at that point I thought I I assumed we were going to lose the babies at that point Um, I would not have admitted that to Elaine at all but I got a taxi up to the hospital I walked in and my initial view of Elaine was that she was thinking the same thing he tells me that I said to him that I'm go- that I was going to need a lot of counselling. So I must have known at, at that point that this was not going to have a good conclusion. I remember saying to someone who sat next to me, I remember the depression on the bed of someone sitting next to me, I remember them saying, and sort of like holding my hand, and I said to them, I'm only 24 weeks, I'm only 20, like repeating to them, and her going, I know. You know, so we both knew, we both knew. And I, that was it. That was the end for me. I just thought, they're, they're dead. I thought the waters leaving my body meant that they had both instantly died. And given that that's what you were thinking, the fact mm. that you know then that there has to be some sort of delivery is even more horrible, isn't it? Well, I, I just didn't think that far ahead. And I th- I think that was also compounded by the fact that from what I can remember, I was just told to sort of like lie down and have a rest. And so Mark came and lay down next to me and was told like, close my eyes and try and try and rest up. And I was sort of like, oh, well, tomorrow I just won't be pregnant. <laughs> you know, it was that I didn't ever think I've got to go through some sort of delivery. Was there a feeling that you had to support him as well? They're his kids huge amount of guilt that I'd killed his children. You remember thinking that at that moment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was my body, it was my waters that had broken. And also a sense of guilt of, could I have done something to prevent this? If I wasn't laughing about with my mates, talking about, I'm going to get some disposable pants and that's it now, you're just going to have to take me to the loo every two seconds. (laughs) You know, all of those sorts of jokes. Why on earth had I not put two and two together and realised that this was waters rather than bladder? How could I have missed that? As someone who reads so much and Googling everything, like, how have I missed that? It's a massive amount of guilt. So I started to get these really bad, like, period pains. And I said to him, I've got these awful cramps. Like, he was lying on the floor at that point in this middle of the night. And he's, he's sort of saying, well, what should I do? And I said, oh, go and get someone. And they had a quick look at me and they said, oh, you're in labour. Very quickly get taken to another room where there's probably about 10, 12 people milling about, all looking very worried. Lots of people stabbing things in my arm. Yeah. So I was given steroids and something that made me very, very hot. So the whole of my body just went suddenly very hot and then I threw up on myself and... 
I remember just going in and out of madness and one minute wanting to sing some sort of song because someone said something and it reminded me of a song. So I've just said, oh, should I start singing the song? <laughs> and then, then crying, like desperately, desperately crying because they were either dead or they were going to die. Was there someone emotionally supporting you then? Yes, Mark. Hand on shoulder, left hand side. So I always remember that. Hand on left shoulder. And just constantly, just being there. He doesn't really have to say anything. His presence sort of is enough for me. Um, He's my sort of everything. I don't think there was anything he could say as well to, you know, what do you you say in, in those moments? But then it's that thing, isn't it, of all those people in the room. There's all these, like, highly qualified Mm. people in the room. They're all there to help you. That's sort of amazing, but they're also treating you as a biological specimen, right? Yeah. It's like, we need to do this to her thigh, we need to do this to her face, you know. Yeah. Having Mark there is the big difference, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because he's the constant, he's the the face of, you know, I... I don't remember the faces of all the other people, but I know he's there. Like, in my in my memory, I know he's there. So what happened? Eventually, and it, it went on for hours, it's like five, six hours. Eventually, these two paramedics turn up. They're called Nigel and Brian. So I remember that. And lovely, like, Geordie paramedics going, oh, you're, you're all right, pet? <laughs> it's like, not really. But you know, it's, yeah, great. Where we where we're going, and um, they say, "Oh, it's twins, is it's twins, Nigel and Brian, eh? Nigel and Brian, like pointing at each other as if to say, like, you know, you could name them after us." And off we went down the road, sort of twenty miles to a hospital in Sunderland. So off we went in the ambulance, and um, Mark following behind in a taxi. I don't know why he couldn't come in the ambulance. I've always thought that, why couldn't he come with me? But I think there was just a need for there to be lots of medical people around me. One of the midwives who came in the ambulance kept telling me it closed my eyes. And I think she was terrified that I would give birth on the side. There was the suggestion, there was there was conversations, I remember sort of round me, round my head, there were conversations about what would happen if I gave birth at the side of the road. Because yeah, yeah. that would be it, that would there wouldn't be anything they would be able to do for them at that point. But in your mind, I'm mm. sorry to return to yeah. this because it's such a horrible thought, but you were thinking they are both dead. Yes, yeah. So it's actually, I presume, like a glimmer of hope, isn't it? If they're actually suddenly talking about, well, we can get them to this hospital and deliver them alive. Mm, I don't know. I don't think I thought of it that way. I thought it was more, we don't want them to be here because we don't have the means for them here. I still wasn't thinking about birth, yeah. even though people were telling me like eight centimetres, nine centimetres, and I know what that means. Yeah, yeah. So I'm still just, I think I'd cut my body away from my mind at that point that they, it was a defence mechanism, I think, of, well, from my neck down, that's somewhere else, right. and my head up, yeah. I'm sort of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But from my neck down, I, I don't remember touching the bump. I don't remember talking to them. I don't remember saying anything sort of comforting. I just thought they were dead. But they weren't? No. <laughs> what happened? Uh, when we got to the next hospital, lots and lots of movement, lots of people coming in. And 
I suddenly felt the need to push, which I had never had that sensation before. And I didn't know how to push because I hadn't been to any classes. So they had to sort of instruct me as to how to how to push. Twin one arrived head first and was then taken away to the back of the room. And twin two came out legs first. <laughs> so again, within minutes, taken to the back of back of the room. But I didn't look. And I didn't want to look. And I remember very distinctly thinking I can't see them because whatever they look like now I will live with that for the rest of my life and I don't think they're gonna look good. I said to Mark that we had to name them then and there because I didn't know if they were alive or not and I couldn't bear the thought of two babies that would you know that had died sitting somewhere like in a morgue or something that didn't have names so I was like I must name them. So we named them then and there. What did you name them? So um, twin one is uh, Henry and twin two was Blake. And how are you feeling then at this point? I don't know where I am at this point. So I'm in a hospital that I've n- I didn't know existed in a place that I don't go to very often. We don't really need to go to Sunderland if you're in, in, in Newcastle or the surrounding areas. There wasn't any... I've been a couple of times. I've been on a few nights out in Sunderland. But... I didn't know there was a hospital there. <laughs> and we just sat, we just sat in this room waiting for news. And surrounded by babies. I mean, that is, yes. a, I mean, it's a kicker, isn't it? You hear that all the time when mm. people talk about this sort of scenario. Yeah. Why do you have to be delivered back to the maternity ward? Yes. Why did you have to be delivered back to the maternity ward? Because that's where the doctors that, and nurses are. Because that's where everyone is. And I, I do hear it as well. And I, I speak to people about this, about having somewhere separate, for for those parents to to go to yeah. because you know we the room that we were in had a shared bathroom with next door so when i was going to the loo directly in front of me was another door and that was the door leading to the the next door's room and so you can hear that family sort of bonding and the baby crying yeah. there was also a crib in our room as well so right. there was an empty crib yeah yeah just in there i remember thinking i wonder if anyone's going to come and take that away yeah, yeah. they never did but it's also very close to the neonatal unit so where else would you want to be you know it would i didn't know it at the, t- at the time but it was the the other end of the corridor was the ne- neonatal unit what's that room like when you go in and see your kids in there i walked in and I burst into tears. And I just remember being doubled over. And I don't even think it was sad tears. I don't think it was happy tears. I think it was just, we were just overcome with emotions because it had been such a long day. I'd probably had half an hour sleep in 48 hours by that point. And knowing the journey that we were going to be in, because we'd kind of realized if this is to end in any way happily, we are going to be in hospitals for three, four months. And this is going to be our lives for the very medium term. But ten fingers, ten toes, times two, it was they were there and they were and they were ours. Our babies were in what they call a rusty bag, to keep them warm, which was just a little crinkly plastic bag to try and keep all the, the heat in. So you couldn't really see them very well. And they also had little woolen hats on their head. And later I discovered that was to keep the ventilation tube in. 
It also makes sure that their eyes are protected because at that time they haven't opened their eyes. Um, so you can barely, barely see them. They were very brown, very bruised as well. Um, there'd been a lot of trauma from the birth. Sure. But they're alive. But they are alive. Was it... I mean, you had convinced yourself they weren't. Yes. I'm sure you'd been told that they were before you mm-hmm. went in the room, but mm-hmm. still... Yeah. Was that the moment that you knew they were? Yes. If you know what I mean? Yeah, it was. It was sort of, oh, here they are. Yeah. And wow, they do really look identical. They are exactly the same. Exactly the same. So yes. That's, that's a roller coaster, you know. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, in 24 hours, really. Yes. You've gone from, I'm having bladder problems. Yes. To both my children are dead. Yes. To, I need to deliver some dead babies. Mm-hmm. To, I have two alive children that are being supported through medicine. Yes. It's a lot. It is. It is a lot. And it was so quick, I think. That was the hit the nail on the head. It's just so quick. From one moment, I'm thinking, I really need to get that marking done. To the next moment being, how am I here? How has this happened? And I didn't really believe I was actually there. I think in my brain, I was thinking, well, this is a dream, isn't it? This is a terrible dream that I'm having. Yeah. You just don't believe it's real. But also you're a mum. Yeah, yeah. That that shape-shifting identity thing yeah. that every parent gets. Yeah. Suddenly happened to you. Yeah. But I felt I wasn't a very good mum because something had happened within my body that had made this happen. Are you a religious person? No, not at all. Did you consider it? <laughs> no. Because that's the thing. I'm not a religious person, but in that situation, that's not much you can do, is there? Like, prayer and medicine is it, right? Yeah. I think people offered prayers, which we we, we accepted gladly. Like, people would say, oh, I'm praying for you, or, you know, sort of things, or, well, you know, really nice words, which was which was lovely. But I didn't feel I needed need to call the chaplain or or we were or we were offered to have them um christened or baptized or anything you know there was like this this whatever you want done with this children a blessing and we said no because we sort of felt it would be hypocritical if we didn't have that religious faith to then suddenly have one so what do you do you sit <laughs> you sit by the incubators you swap so one person sits with Henry, one person sits with Blake and then you swap around. And you can't touch them at all, I'm guessing. Not at that point. I don't think I would have even wanted to, even if they, you know, the neonatal staff had offered. Yeah. I would have been terrified to even open the portholes because these little portholes to get inside. They were doing it very expertly, but I would have been terrified to have put any sort of infection in there or to have hurt them. So yeah, I did not touch them at all. What's the atmosphere like? there i mean it takes a certain type of person to work in an environment like that and then you've got the other families around you too it's it's very odd you have no privacy so doctors will come and talk to you and the other mothers and fathers are around and you know that things are getting serious for someone when you're asked to leave at that point because that's when you know that someone's having a conversation that they don't want the other mothers and fathers listening to. But you, you recognise the same people because you're spending hours a day there. So you you do just get a, like a little nod um, or a, how's, that, how's everything going? But I think I quite quickly learned that you don't want to ask too many questions because you don't want 
to find out or I didn't want to find out that someone was doing better or worse than I would have wanted to ask about. Didn't want to put anyone out and didn't want didn't want to be the person who asked that that question when someone's having an awful day and putting a brave face on it. It's interesting that you say you wouldn't want to find out if they were doing better or worse because worse everyone can understand but actually was there a thing where like I don't want to know if someone's kid's doing better? Yeah absolutely because we knew we were still in serious danger (laughs) at that point and I was very aware that we were going to be there for a long time and everyone else could see that our children were smaller than everyone else's. How long did that go on for sitting by the incubator? It went on till day five. We had come into the room and someone had said to us, oh, Henry's not very well today. And we thought, okay. And so we went out for a little walk. There was a park nearby, so we walked around this park. And we talked a lot about what would happen if Henry wasn't very well. And if he continued to not be very well. And then we went back into the room and one of our amazing consultants sort of put his hand on my shoulder and said, I'm glad you were not here to see that. And it had turned out that Henry had taken a real turn for the worse while we'd been out. And they had to put him on um, a machine which was called like an oscillator, which essentially shook his body because his lungs had stopped working. So he would just shake, he would just sit and shake, or lie there and, and shake. And they didn't really want us to see that, um, which was very kind of them. So we went out for another walk, came back, and then we went back to our room. And I rang the um, hospital, I rang the neonatal unit in the middle of the night, it was sort of like four or five o'clock. And I rang and said, you know, how are they getting on? And they said, oh, he's stable. Blake's doing much better, you know, because obviously there's the two of them, so you're always thinking about the other one as well. And then a few moments later, they rang me back and said, I'm really sorry, I, I remember hearing in a voice, you know, you things are not looking good, You you have to come in now. And so off we went to the neonatal unit it was about five o'clock six o'clock in the morning off we went and you could see that things were very very bad he was on this ventilator that shook him there were lots of people around him there were some gorgeous neonatal nurses who i will never forget um who were looking after him was comforting him and i stood by the window and i looked up in into the sky and i said you can go now and off he went. What do you think motivated you saying that if you're not a religious person? I did not want him to feel, even though this tiny little thing that did not even know I existed. Um, I did not want him, in my mind, I did not want him to feel that he had to stick around for us. It's. It, I think it's a very selfish, I think it's me saying it's okay if he dies. I think it's okay if he dies. I don't truly believe that he could hear me or that he felt my presence at all. I really, really don't. But that's what I felt compelled to think at that point in time. How did you actually know that he died? Did someone tell you? Or We were asked um, 
we were taken into a room shortly after that moment when I just sort of knew things. I, I just knew he died at that point. I just knew it was some sort of instinct that he just wasn't there anymore. And we were taken into a room and we were um, we were asked very, very gently with lots of lovely people around us if we would like to, and I love these words, it's like my favourite phrase, if we would like to reorientate Henry's care, which essentially means withdrawing all of the medical equipment. And we agreed very, very, you know, it was instinct for us. Both of us were like, yes, we would like to reorientate Henry's care. Um, And then he was brought into a room with us. All of the tubes and the wires were taken away and he had died. And we got to hold him for the first time. Wow. Mm -hmm. He was heavier than I thought he would be. (laughs) Had this weight to him. Is that this is an awful question, but is is there some happiness then in being able to touch him for the first time? Yes, hugely, and and instinctively, I um, I started looking at all of his all of his body. I just wanted to see him. I just wanted to see what he looked like. So I took all like the little clothes and the little bundle, bundled him up the bed, gorgeous, and I just opened it all up and just was sort of like, well, what what do his legs look like? What do his arms look like? What's his stomach look like? Like, yeah. And did he look like a baby? Yes, he did. Yeah. He looked absolutely like a baby. Yeah. Just a very, very small one. But you're not in the same position as other people, even in that neonatal unit, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's sort of the worst that can happen. Mm-hmm. But you've got another one. Yes. When I've spoken to other people about loss and about um losing a baby or a child I know lots of people now who have been through that terrible event they tell me that they were able to go home after it had happened to gather themselves to to grieve spend time with their friends their family And sort of start the process, start, you know, thinking about all the things that need to be done, all of the rituals, all the, you know, people you need to contact, people you need to, things you need to do, funeral arrangements, and start the process. For us, we said goodbye to Henry, we got in the car, I drove us back home, because at that point I just might I want to be home. So I drove us back home, we went to bed, we woke up, and then we looked at each other and went, oh, we have to go back now. Yeah. So we had to drive back to the hospital. And then we had to go and see our son who's still alive, who looks completely identical to the son who's died. Yeah. And walk back into a room where only that morning there were two incubators and now there's one. And there's a space where one is missing. And also, we we really... We were very concerned for the other parents in the room. And this is not being us, being, you know, we, we, we did not want them to know that babies died in the unit. I remember really, really thinking, I don't want them to know. I mean, there's no way of them not knowing he's not there anymore. But I don't want them to know that this could be a possibility for them. I was really concerned that they would be terrified by what they had seen and Blake yes 
you're then presumably thinking, well, the prognosis for him is not looking so amazing either. No, and it and it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, the days following Henry's death, Blake was not was not well. Uh, his kidneys failed. We were told to prepare again. Um, one of our friends put a condolences card through the door because we were so convinced that he was going to die as well. We were t- saying to everyone, "Look, Henry's died. Blake's not very well. Um, he's really not very well." And we'd been given a few hours with him, but then he rallied. And then he was moved to another hospital because his bowel started to show signs of deterioration. He was in intensive care for a while there. And then then he started to do really well. And he was moved to like the high dependency unit, which is a lot better, which was very exciting for us because it was bigger and brighter and there weren't as many staff. And then one day I came in and um, he had developed something called necrotizing enterocolitis, which is essentially where the bowel starts to die or part of the bowel starts to die. Um, Blake then had um, three surgeries on his bowel. Um, he also had other surgeries to to help him along along his way. So through all of that, you're kind of, I guess, trying to grieve Henry, right? Yes. But you you can't because you've got to focus on Blake. Yes. And that's going on for months. Months. Where are you living? At home. Back at back at home. I mean, sleeping somewhere else to where your child is still on support. Yes. For months. Knowing that the other one died. Yeah. It must be just... I, I can't even find the right word. It's unsettling isn't the right word. I don't know what the right word is. Mm. Disturbing isn't the right word either because you know that they're in the best possible place for them. But it's, it's discombobulating, right? Yeah. It's it's two roots, isn't it, in life? It's like, my baby has died and I'm attempting to grieve for them, but my other baby is alive but might die. So what do, what do I do? Where do I put myself? Yeah. And where does my brain go? Do I go into full-on grief? Do I take... You know, I was on maternity leave. I didn't have bereavement leave because I've got one surviving child. So I never took bereavement leave because I was on maternity leave with my living son. What, like, where do you place yourself, and how how do you deal with when when the days are bad, and you think you're staring at this child that looks identical, and when when he's unwell, he looked very much like when Henry died. So you're staring at this child that's really really unwell, and you're thinking, well, he might die as well, and I'm going to have to have another funeral. And then on the days where things are good, you're celebrating, but you're also thinking, oh, this is brilliant. Like, Blake's doing really well today and he's got a sticker from the unit and we've got all these lovely things. But you can't really celebrate because you're the kid's dead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is no greetings card for that, right? No. You know, what's the right tone to strike? And with your friends, what do they say? Oh, my friends say the best things. Um, My best mate said to me, it's just shit, isn't it? And that's what I say to people who've gone through this as well. Because people don't say that to you. They don't say it's just shit. They say, well, sometimes they just don't say anything at all. And that can be the worst thing. Or it sort of will focus totally on the child that's alive, which is totally right. He is alive and here he is and we're doing things. But there's like that sense of we, we won't talk about Henry because that might upset you. Or will that bring back terrible memories? So the best thing that people can do is just talk about the boys or the twins or, you know, talk about them. Because he did live, yeah. lived for six days. Um, and he and he was, he was here. And they are twins. Blake is not just a single entity. He will always have, he's, he's the youngest. He, I always, I always say he's my youngest child. 
because he is by a couple of minutes. Being in hospitals meant that we were catching bugs and I was unwell, so couldn't go into the ward to see Blake because I'd caught a bug that was meant I had to take 48 hours from the last time I was sick. So I was spending time in Costa Coffee at the bottom of the RVI in Newcastle uh, whilst my mum and dad and Elaine went up to see him, which was incredibly, incredibly tough, as you can imagine. And then I went back to work. No. I went back in four weeks. I went, I had given, I'd agreed with my, with my boss long before any of this happened. Look, you'll take four weeks, you'll take two weeks paternity and two weeks holiday. And after four weeks, I went back to work. What was that like? Stupid. Um, <laughs> but I need, I, I think it was a very, very selfish thing for me to do. I, I need some normality into my life. So it never occurred to me not to go back to work. I'd sent my boss three texts. I'd sent him, I need to leave work. By the way, the boys are born. And I'm sorry to say this, but Henry's passed away. So no one expected me back. I tried to get in early to so that I didn't have to do the big walk in. And there were two of the younger lads who clearly had, had no idea where to look. And there was a work experience boy in my seat because... They weren't expecting me back. And then it was just a procession of people walking in going and double taking to see me there. And you saw that flicker of, oh shit, I don't know what to ask him. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There was a few people who came across and said, look, I'm very sorry. But there was a lot of people who just had no idea what to do. Um, include, yeah, my boss was very, very supportive, but I was like, should we just, can we just catch up? And he was like, I just need a few minutes just to work out what, guess what the fuck he's going to say. But yeah, I, I feel really bad about it, but I, I, I couldn't cope with being in, being on wards every single day and I need something else. And without acknowledging it, I left Elaine to spend the time there, um, which I, to this day, I I obviously regret and feel awful about, but yeah. Blake, Blake bears the challenges of prematurity. So being born at 24 weeks, that's tough. Having five operations and and then more once he left the neonatal unit, that's tough. So Blake is not your typical three-year-old, but he's amazing. He's he's just, I've never met anyone that is, that just has so much within them, even though he's not able to speak, for example, you know exactly what he's thinking. And it's usually with a bit of a eyebrow raised in the air and a bit of a, what you do, mum? You know, he, he can't say mum. He, he doesn't say mama or dada or all, all these things. But I know when he looks at me, he's sizing me up. <laughs> is it? Is he going to have learning difficulties forever? Yes. Yeah, forever, forever. Yeah. So Blake is profoundly disabled, if we want to put that sort of terminology will, onto it. And will he live into adulthood? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Do doctors know? They don't know. I don't think we asked the question. <laughs> he's here and he's with us. And we just go day by day. We just, we're, we're a really normal family, I think. We're just, we, don't, we go to the park or we go, you know, this, this, I drag them along to stately homes. And both of them look at me like, why are we here? Uh, you know, we, 
watch telly together and you know it's just that our house is full of equipment and um there are rooms that get shut have even more equipment in that's how you would know it was different and if you looked at him you would see that he's visibly disabled but i i don't think i go asking the questions even though i know he has disabilities that people would say are life limiting what about his brother Mm. does he still look a bit like you imagine henry would look yeah totally totally when he's asleep you know when he closes his eyes i can see flashes of henry when i held him and to begin with that was very disturbing i'm going to use the word um that was very disturbing because it would pull me straight back into being in that room with him when he had died holding him for the first time and it would be it would totally sort of hit me doesn't so much now now i kind of look at it and go oh that's nice they would have looked you know he would have looked like this Elaine wrote into the show because she said that this subject doesn't get talked about very much. Yes. And to be honest, my first instinct was maybe it doesn't get talked about that much because it's really not that common. It seems like an extreme thing that happens. No, I mean, two in every 64 babies that are born in the UK are twins. And there is an increased chance of stillbirth. I think it doubles the chances of stillbirth. And it's three and a half times more likely that a child will die within the first few 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 weeks of its life so just just from being a, a twin birth it it happens it happens and we saw it happen regularly in our four months in hospital and that's just one hospital or that, that we saw it you get used to seeing the the boxes that people carry out with them the sympathy boxes so it it it, it really is happening and no one speaks about it and I never, ever thought it would happen to us. So what's the thing? I mean, you don't want to say to someone listening to this who's expecting twins, this is something you need to think about, but you do want to say what? There is life after neonatal. And we've got a lovely, charming, happy boy who charms everyone he meets. Um, he's a celebrity around Newcastle. Like, we are walking through the street and children point at him and say, oh, it's Blake, because he knows everyone at nursery and everyone at nursery knows him. And when we're in the soft play, parents come up to us and say, oh, it's, it's, it's Blake. Oh, I didn't realize. I've not, we've not met before. And I've never seen you or your child or heard of your child, but he is just a, a, a happy boy who loves life and loves meeting people and spending time with people. And it's, it took a long time for us to get there, but he is Blake and he is a character. I have spoken to many people who've either had a single loss or a, or a double, or triplets, for example, someone who might have lost one triplet. And then they have that, I'm always struck by this, they have that moment where someone says, oh, twins to them. Right, and they yeah. get really excited and they just want to go, no, I, there was a third. So the... Things like that, I think they're quite invisible. And certainly when I'm wandering about the street with Blake and taking him places, you know, I don't have a big sign on my head saying, oh, there was a second one, <laughs> you know, and don't ask me if he's got a sibling, <laughs> you know, because that's going to be a difficult conversation for both of us. Yes, yeah, so what do you do in that situation? Because that is a natural question. Um, really, really does depend who it is. I'll, I'll judge them. You know, I'll... I'll take a breath and I'll kind of go 
can I do it today? Can they do it today? Will this be okay? And I might even, if I'm feeling like I've got a lot of dark humour in me that day, I might make a joke. Oh, I don't want another one. Because that, take that away. Um, But sometimes if I can judge it, I can say, oh, well, you know, he was a twin and his twin very sadly passed away. Um, And yeah, that that has not, there's not been a bad outcome to that. People have just gone, I'm sorry, and they'll thank you very much, and then we move on. And what about other people that you meet that have been in this situation? You said you've you've spoken to people now who mm-hmm. have, I guess, through what, online support or charity mm-hmm. support? Mm-hmm. What's the thing you have in common that people out there listening to this just don't realise? I think the, the big thing is how a double buggy can ruin your day. So if you are out and about, just seeing in the corner of your eye a double buggy, you have that panic of, is it twins? Is it twins? Or is it just one child that's slightly older than the other and they're both in sort of like this double? So that just, comes just up a lot. Just seeing twins is painful. Hugely, hugely. Because it is it is the sliding doors moment. It's, oh, look, here's look what you could have had. Yeah. You know, that here's your life being lived out in front of you. And with no sort of like, we don't want those people to not have it. We just want us to have it as well, (laughs) you know? Can we all just have it? That would be great. So yeah, twins. I once saw seven sets of twins in one day. And I I don't say that out loud very often because I think people really do think I've gone. But (laughs) I genuinely did, you know, and it's because I'm, I'm alert to it. I would never have looked for twins before. I wouldn't have even noticed them. But they're in the supermarket. They're in the playground. They're, you know... They're all, they're everywhere. <laughs> it sounds as well like you're really commending most of the medical support that you had. Mm. But are there things along your journey that you think could have been just dealt with better? I, I, and it may have happened. It may have happened. I've not looked at my medical notes, but I don't remember being told, look, if you start getting this sort of like what you perceive as bladder weakness you must tell someone or there is a possibility that your waters could break very early I don't remember that happening and one of the reasons I talk about it and I I talk to friends who are are pregnant or you know having babies or thinking about I, I say it a lot because it just didn't dawn on me that this sort of thing could happen and uh it might not have had it might not have changed the outcome. If, if I'd known two weeks earlier, would would anything have changed? My waters probably still would have broke. I can't, and I can't live like that thinking, oh, well, if I had, you know, if I'd known two weeks earlier, this could all be very different because that would drive me round the bend. But I do, I'm very, very keen to sort of say to everyone, medical professionals and, and people who are um, thinking about getting pregnant or are pregnant that, it's particularly around the multiple pregnancy, something like that, you know, a perceived bladder weakness might not be. And it, you should go and speak to someone about it. Elaine and Mark Gregerson. I asked them if they could recommend some support organisations that have benefited them, and they have suggested SANS, who support anyone affected by the death of a baby, and the Twins Trust Bereavement Service, who support all parents and carers of twins, triplets or more who have died. I've put links to both those organisations in the blog post for this episode uh, over on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, which is the same place to head if, like Elaine and Mark, you have a story you'd like to share with us on a future edition of the show. Just fill in the feedback form there. Still to come, some happy news from Alex Fox. 
That's next, after this. Time for something completely different. It is your sex questions answered in the foxhole with Alex Fox, who's here in person after last month's absence. Welcome back, Alex. How are you? I find myself, Ollie, with more in common with a GP's phone line on a Monday morning than I ever expected to have <laughs> because I'm engaged. Mazaltov. <laughs> Thank that, you. That is tremendously exciting. He got me on the pier, got down on one knee, uh, managed to get out about three sentences before I interrupted him because I didn't realise what was going on. <laughs> so he, he kept the he kept the proposal fairly short. And was the answer fairly short? Because you're someone who's talked a lot about, I guess, you know, alternatives to marriage for couples listening to this and how it's not for everybody. Did you know it was for you? Did you, If you weren't expecting it, you were instantly like, yes? or Once I stopped gulping like the non-existent fish, I actually did forget to say yes initially. I, I was making loads of comments about how surprised and shocked I was and trying not to fall off the end of the pier. Um, but yes, I did say yes. I imagine there's probably some listeners who are surprised by that because, as you say, you know, I'm, I'm a I'm a big proponent of um, non-traditional relationship models right. if, if that's what suits you, and I'm not somebody that feels that I have to have a piece of paper to demonstrate my uh, my commitment to somebody. But I have always wanted to feel really cherished and to feel like I'm in a team building a life with somebody, and that 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 we are committing to one another in that to me, very joyful way. Uh, So I was ecstatic that a wonderful person wanted that with me. Uh Well, congratulations. Have you you worked out how many people are coming to the wedding? Too many, too many. You are are on the list. list. I won't tell you too much, Ollie, because it's obviously it's not going to be a standard wedding. It's going to be extremely unpredictable. Is it going to be a cosplay wedding? Not quite. But there will be many playful aspects to it. Yes. Expect the unexpected. Okay. We want it to be joyous, surprising and delightful. It's hilarious that you've been engaged in 2023 and I'm fully expecting to be at your wedding before I'm at Ollie Pierce, who's been engaged <laughs> since I met him in 2014. Um, <laughs> no pressure, Ollie. Oh, uh, poor Ollie. Time for your questions of sex. And this month's comes from an anonymous man who says, Oh God, oh God, oh God, Alex, I'm mortified. So it's a nice way to start an email, isn't it? Um, I don't know how I'm going to face my girlfriend again. After about five months of being really busy with work and pretty anxious about that, mm. which took a toll on our sex life, I've been consciously trying to put more effort into prioritising intimate time with my partner, pushing myself out of my comfort zone to introduce new things and make our sex sessions spicier. I've been trying to prove myself after that blip where my preoccupation with my day job meant I couldn't do my night job, if you get me. Not that sex should be a job to you, but yes, I get what you're saying. Uh, And I want to reassure my girlfriend that I've not become boring or disinterested. So with that in mind, last night I tried to initiate some dirty talk. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. (laughs) Trying to be in command and daring and G'd up on adrenaline, I blurted out, you love that, don't you, you filthy whore? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I shouldn't laugh. We were fucking in missionary, so it was right in her face. Oh, God. I saw her look stricken, and I thought she was going to cry for a second. Oh, no. But then she actually cracked up. She was laughing so much she couldn't breathe. And then... (laughs) She took herself off to the toilet for about 15 minutes. 
I pretended to fall asleep while she was gone, and I haven't spoken to her about it since. <laughs> That's how you know it's a long-term relationship, isn't it? She just came back to the bed and just was not discussed. The noble out there. <laughs> how the hell do I come back from this gaff, Alex? I don't know whether to cry or laugh myself now. I want to hide in a cave. Oh, well, I'm sorry for laughing that these attempts at pillow talk left your partner wanting to smother you with the bed covers. Um, I guess, first of all, I should say congratulations for having the gumption of for giving it a shot at all. Yes. Uh, there was some research done by Jorex um, only a couple of months ago, actually, that said that one in five sexually active women and a quarter uh, of men said that they'd feel uncomfortable or would never, ever talk mm. to a partner about what turned them on or what they needed to orgasm. Yeah, I mean, some people so, feel uncomfortable talking talking at all during sex, right? Yes. Even saying, I like that, don't do this, turn the light on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Never so, mind saying pussy. Never, yeah, like, exactly. That, that, they're totally, the cat's got their tongue when yeah. it comes to talking during sex full stop. So, right. well done for trying. Yeah. Um, should you laugh? Should you cry? I would say, first of all, start by apologising because although I we have been giggling here, um, you called your girlfriend a whore and <laughs> that isn't everyone's cup of tea. So, um, first apologise. Then we can get to the laughter and then maybe we can get to some practice and uh, and some amelioration of one's dirty talk techniques if you want to give this another pop. Um, the whore thing is interesting, isn't it, that his mind jumped to that? I suspect that that's probably the influence of porn. Mm. A lot of people, when they think dirty talk, they think humiliation and degradation. But I, there's an element of, like, you want it so bad, right? You're dirty, you want it. But then to actually call someone a working prostitute, I mean, that's what that means. Oh, it's better than calling them an unemployed prostitute, I suppose. <laughs> sure. You're a slut who no one wants. But you're, you're, you're a professional sex worker is what you're saying in that moment, right? It's a, strange, it's a strange thing to reach for in a way with your long-term partner as a fantasy. Well, inherently being a sex worker some people would claim is not a degrading thing sure uh, but so I, I don't want to i yeah. don't want to conflate those two things it's a weird and, horny and label like to give your girlfriend i think like i say i think a lot of people are inspired by porn and so that's where their mind goes first but at best that might not be to somebody's taste at worst it might be triggering uh, it might be traumatic it might be offensive I asked my audience on Instagram and Twitter, at Alex Fox, A-L-I-X-F-O-X, um, if they had heard anything from a partner during sex that had made them feel crushed or disappointed or turned off like that. Mm. One woman, Andrea, said, my lover called me a disgusting slag mid-sex and then was shocked <laughs> when I burst into tears. Another guy said that his girlfriend had said it's absolutely fine for him to use the word moist uh, when describing what I presume is uh, his or her wetness and excitement. Uh, but damp, <laughs> damp panties uh, is, com <laughs> is completely uh, out of order. Yeah. I would argue that anything that reminds me of uh, a 1970s black mould, <laughs> black yeah. mould creeping up a, a bad rented accommodation wall or dapper laughs, uh, both of those mm. things would completely be game it's over. It's funny that me, you go so. dapper laughs and I go Lenadrosita. Anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> neither is sexy anyway. Neither. All of this, though, points to the importance of ideally having a chat about dirty talk before you have the dirty talk itself. Um, it might seem a little bit forced to sit down with a cuppa and talk about these things, but that's a lot less awkward than being shut down between the sheets when you blurt out something like, you filthy whore. Right. Some people would actually, I think, maybe consent to being called that because it turns their partner on. Like, I suppose what's embarrassing about this is that 
I think he was trying to turn her on and he ended up making her cry and then laugh. But if she knew that he liked calling her that and they discussed that before, but actually she didn't like it, but she was willing to do it anyway, that's also a possible discussion, isn't it? Somebody can agree to do something that maybe doesn't entirely float their boat, but with, is comfortably within their boundaries because it turns their partner on. Yeah. That is very different, however, to being called something that really hurts your feelings when you weren't expecting it and that hasn't been consensually discussed. And you have someone inside you. Yeah. So what, <laughs> what are your tips then for preparing your pillow talk chat? Well, I turned to Lola Jean, um, who actually runs um, workshops called Dirty Talk and Consent in Conversation. Could it be any more, uh, <laughs> any more finely tuned for, for this particular narration? And she said, yes, do talk before your Dirty Talk session about names that you do and don't consent to being called or that you, that you are you know that you are actively like or that you're okay with also um names for body parts physical and non-physical compliments that you're into or that are out of bounds all those things are worth worth chatting about um cameron moore who's a former phone line sex operator uh, and founder of the smut slam Sa- saucy storytelling nights um she suggested that if you do suspect that maybe you and your partner would like to dip into elements of domination and degradation but you you kind of want to test the waters rather than diving into the deep end of of calling someone a whore um maybe saying something like uh you're a dirty little beast aren't you or she actually says uh you're a naughty little bird Mm. like that's that's kind of yeah that sounds a bit more entry level yes and seeing how they react to that i suppose the thing is if it was clear as well that you were playing characters it would be more forgivable and more understandable wouldn't it if you're playing a role it's probably a little bit easier to be like, oh, I let the script get taken away with me, you know. Sure, but I guess it sounded like it was genuinely coming from him. Exactly. So his partner might have thought, does this really reflect what he thinks of me? Exactly. This has never been discussed previously. This is, as you say, out of the blue while we're getting blue and now I feel blue mm. because of it. Mm. I do think after he's apologised, though, and had this chat about preferred terms and, uh, you know, established this mutual vocabulary and maybe... Maybe also, if she feels inclined, maybe his girlfriend might want to apologise too because she did laugh at him a lot and that's probably crushed his confidence. Mm. I mean, I don't blame her for that, so I don't think she owes him an apology as such, but it might be good for them both to discuss how feelings might have been hurt during during this encounter. After that, I think it actually would be good for them both to laugh about this. Um, And in fact, I'd argue that practising, embracing the joy and the silliness when something does go tits up and you laugh your tits up, laugh your tits off about it, that is a good sexual skill. Yes. Absolutely. So she was laughing, but he felt humiliated. But there is a version where she's laughing and that's horny in itself because you're having fun, you're playing. Yeah, it, it can be a connective moment. Yeah. If you can share this as a silly moment and both have a giggle about it, I think that's a really good way of not only repairing what seems like a rough situation, but also like actively turning it into something good. Laughing together is a positive thing. Um, if you then want to recover the sexy mode uh, and segue back into being slick and sleek and, mm-hmm. and all very purring and polished, um, the simple phrase, now, where were we? can be a very good way of resetting the mood from giggling to wriggling. Yes, although after she's been 15 minutes in the bathroom and presumably all boners have been killed, that's difficult, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, <laughs> Yes, I'm talking about future sessions yes. where 
someone might giggle because what it sounded like a banger in someone's head has come out of a clangor when they actually <laughs> as a, when they actually vocalize it or you know they've said something that perhaps on another night someone might feel really uh, turned on by but for whatever reason there's just a little bit of a mismatch of moods and they've got the giggles about it or whatever i think learning to embrace that is a good thing there's a woman called rosie pendlebaby don't know whether that is her real name <laughs> that might be her bedroom name um but she runs lessons in how to write smutty letters so a different type of dirty talk, the written word rather than mm. the spoken. Oh, that's good for someone here. who's nervous, actually, about saying things out loud. Absolutely. Say them in written form, think about them. Yeah, compose it. Um, that gives you a chance as well to practice reading it out loud. Um, she does, however, during her classes, actually encourage people to write deliberately comedic stuff. And she draws her attention to uh, the erotic letters of Charles Bukowski, for example, who wrote reams about getting hot for a refrigerator just to highlight the fact that sexy doesn't always have to be serious. Something can be funny and it can be very frolic-inducing too. Now, uh, where were we? Excellent. Huh? Excellent. Well uh, done. You're learning, Ollie. <laughs> if you've got a question of sex for a future edition of The Foxhole, what do you need to do with it? You can write me a smutty letter and send it to modernmanwith2ends.co.uk by hitting the feedback button. And with that, we've very nearly reached the end of this edition of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It is Tim Parsons from Bexhill-on-Sea who says, Ollie, I'd like to be the ambassador for Bexhill, but I'm not the most interesting person to shout out to. I work for the NHS in a nice complicated area involving IT and diagnostic devices, particularly for ophthalmology. You sound like exactly the sort of person who deserves a shout-out, Tim. Uh, he continues, I've been listening to you since the very beginning, contributing beer money pretty much since the beginning, so I can't even say, hey guys, I'm a new contributor, how about making me a ambassador? But maybe us more lurky listeners might get an occasional shout-out too. I couldn't have put that better myself, Tim. Thank you for lurking, and I now appoint you, Longevity Tim as my ambassador for Bexhill on Sea. Congratulations. Uh, until next time, our music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill. And we'll see you with something new on June the 10th. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.